So I'm going to try to record this again as I'm taking a walk, which might be difficult because people might that I come across may wonder why I'm talking into my phone about weird, abstract-sounding ideas about warfare. Uh, I recorded this once before, and then I realized that there's a real mess in the way I presented it. And part of that is because Keegan, I think, doesn't try to work through the resolution of all of his points. He leaves some of the points for you to you know, do your own work connecting the dots. And so I'll try to get into this in a less time, maybe in a half an hour this time, and kind of try to make smooth it out a little bit. So uh, I started reading about warfare about five weeks ago. It actually coincidentally predated the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. In fact, when I started reading about warfare, the Ukraine wasn't, uh, you know, invasion wasn't even really a live possibility in the news. Uh, you know, it was like five, six weeks ago or something, you know, uh, where, oh, there's troops amassing there. But uh, that wasn't my motivation at all. Um, the problem that I have had and still have is I want to write a story about the 21st century so far, a history of the 21st century so far. And so you very quickly end up uh, asking questions, historical questions like, okay, so what's the 21st century? Where are we situated in bigger, broader history? Um, you know, how do you write a history if you don't if you don't ask these kind of questions? And I think one of the the really important question, which is sort of inescapable, once you take one step down this path, you end up asking, look, are things getting better or not getting better, and on what scale? Um, so how I've done it for the book basically is I started roughly with the Enlightenment and really. I sort of started with the French Revolution. Um, to me, that was the kind of key historical event, and I want to kind of trace through the key events in, you know, mostly in Western history, um, from the late 18th century or you know July 1789 to right up until 2022. And so I want to see kind of like how how does history look if you start with the French Revolution. Um, and, you know, in the penumbra of the French Revolution, as it were. So the ideas, Voltaire and Diderot and those ideas from the uh, philosophs, right? From, the, from the, the, the intellectual tradition that we now call the Enlightenment. Um, and so you can go a little bit before the French Revolution to capture the set of ideas that were so salient culturally, you know, at the time. And then I want to ask, okay, like, so where are we now and where are we going? And one of the things that confronts you almost immediately when you try writing a history of the 21st century so far is that we've been engulfed in warfare for much of the last two decades. The century started with September 11, which is the worst terrorist attack on, on U.S. soil in the history of the nation, brought about two huge wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and right on the heels of pulling, finally pulling our troops out of Afghanistan two days, two decades later, 
we had a few months respite and Russia, uh, Russia went into Ukraine with guns blazing. So the century's been uh, largely, unfortunately, it's been, you know, it's been a saga of wars. Now, there's been other very interesting, interesting uh, events in the 21st century, fortunately. But if you ignored the question of warfare, you wouldn't get very far. Um, so, um, the, the, so that brought me into it. And, um, the idea is one of the key ideas for me is it's inescapable, not really to connect moral ideas with, uh, historical ideas. So we want to ask not just what happened, but is it going somewhere? What's the arrow? Where does the arrow point of history? If there is an arrow and is it trending in some, is that arrow pointing towards less violence or more violence is a perennial question. I think it's a really interesting question to ask. I also think it does not have a particularly easy answer. And I'm quite skeptical uh, that you can, uh, you can see even broadly speaking, and I'll get into this, it's, I'm quite skeptical that it's at least transparently clear that things are getting less violent. You certainly can make a case that's getting more violent. Um, and, you know, there's just, there's, a, there's just a really big discussion to be had about whether or not that's true. Now, history, the, if you walked, I was said this to somebody the other day, if you walked down Palo Alto, where I used to live, uh, you know, which is Silicon Valley epicenter, basically. And you asked 100 people on the street about what's happening in history. Almost everyone will undergird their comments. You know, the frame upon which the framework or foundation upon which they'll, they'll make you, they'll give you their response will be something along the lines of it's progressing. So the first thing you have to note is, for some reason, the modern mind is absolutely convinced that we're making progress. And the progress is roughly linear. Now, this is a very confusing point. People who still want to cling to the idea of the progress being linear will say, yeah, but of course there's gonna be bumps, right? But I think the, of course, well, of course, we don't mean that literally, uh, what, it, it, it would be a reductio ad absurdum to say anything else. Like, so what scale, if it has to be absolutely linear, what scale? So every second gets better than every other second? Every generation is better. Like the people leading into the first great war, like for the next that, that war for the next five years, everything was getting better between 1914 and 1918. Well, no, obviously, things were getting rapidly worse. So you have to ex you have to pull out, as it were, and look at a larger frame um, to to get linear progress off the ground. But. There are lots of other ways to fit, oh, there's bumps, but it's linear. That's actually a commitment to a conceptual scheme that may or may not be true. One way to fit those, the, the, the bumps like, you know, I don't know, World War I and trench warfare, World War II and, um, you know, the Civil War in the United States. And, I mean, like on and on and on for all these wars that are in the last 300 years of history one way to kind of fit the dots is to say uh, it's some kind of a transcendental function, right? Like you could say, well, it's a, like a sine function or a cosine function. It goes up, 
and we trend up for a period of time and then it goes down and then it goes up and we trend up for a period of time and then it goes down. But if you actually tried to draw, you know, if you want to, if you, if you're still of the mind that bringing math concepts into something like history makes it sort of sharper and smarter sounding. Okay, great for you. Bully for you. I'll do it to show how it's silly. Um, but if you tried to, you know, draw a, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a, li- a line showing the progress, right? Like an extra, you know, extrapolate and show how the line is trending upwards across the oscillations. Yeah, that may be true, or it might just be that it's actually just moving along the x-axis and it goes, it gets better and better for a couple decades and then it gets worse and then it gets better and better for a couple days, decades and it gets worse. And then there are other, uh, mathematical constructions that you can apply to history like what if it's going around in a giant circle every thousand years or something like that right and then there are some more depressing ideas that you can have which is actually i think probably closer to the truth which is that we're making progress on some if you're defining the problem in one way then you can see something like linear progress and if you're defining it in another way then you're going to see you're going to see devolution or the lack of progress and so I think if you look specifically in terms of technology, you get a very strong argument for linear progress, right? You still have to, con- you still have to contend with things like environmental disasters, um, you know, the, the atomization of the human person does seem connected somehow to, you know, to a lot of modern information technology. And there are little niggling things like, thermonuclear wars that would uh, you might have to contend with but generally speaking technology seems to be getting better and working better for us of course there's a good reason for that because we develop technology for our purposes and what gets adopted serves a function you know and so if there's no good function for it we generally speaking just it doesn't find a market and it doesn't it doesn't end up getting developed there's no inventor there's no innovator Right, like so, Edison invents the light bulb because somebody wants to read at night, (laughs) right? Uh, He doesn't invent, you know. So a lot of, you know, a lot of the technology will give you a very nice argument. I think what people like to do is take the argument from technology and try to apply it to other more philosophically difficult areas, such as the area of moral progress. Now. This is well-traveled terrain, and I don't pretend that I'm going to make a lot of headway saying everybody's getting worse or everybody's getting better, but I'm saying that outside of the area of the evolution of gadgets, in effect, the, 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 the growing power of technology is a function of time, which you could call classic linear progress. Um, outside of that area, things get a lot murkier. Um, and I think, you know, the 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 imaginary 100 people that I, you know, that I pulled in Silicon Valley will generally speaking start with the clear idea of a linear progression in technology and then claim that we're going to solve cancer and we're, we're you know, we're going to overcome environmental uh, challenges and we're even going to overcome existential risks, you know, simply by following that line of technology and continuing to use modern thinking and modern techniques to make the world better. And we're going to get better people, right? Um, I think that's part of it as well. It's getting a little out there in the dubious area. It's, it's unclear how that happens, but hey, maybe you can keep 
reforming prisons so that your people, by and large, uh, they have a less of a recidivism rate. And that's a rational process of the modern mind acting in nature uh, as well. And so in that sense, it's, it is connected to technological progress that the people get better. Um, so um, if you look at warfare, you have a very big problem right off the bat. One problem is that technology and warfare, because war is that part of society that is, it's, a, it's an institution that's purposively and specifically directed at killing people. It's not a police force, it's a military force, and the military's purpose is to kill enemies. Um, that's pretty indisputable. Uh, that's why they carry guns, right? Um, and that's why those guns aren't put to use um, to, in doing anything other than threat of the threat of violence, the threat of death. All right. So, um, when you have an institution like that, the effective technology on a military institution is to make it more effective. And when you apply scientific, you know, quote unquote, scientific principles to an institution like the military, so you. You know, it, if you create, if you, if you, if you use modern, rational bureaucratic methods to make um, a corporation more efficient, then bully for you, you made more widgets. If you make, if you use modern bureaucratic methods uh, to make a military more efficient, then unfortunately for you, you made every, you made it a more efficient killing machine. So. The relationship between technology and different institutions really matters. And the relationship between linear progress with technology and the military institution seems to be at odds. So the greater uh, progress we make with technology, the more that institution becomes an instrument of blood. I mean, it becomes more effective at killing. Uh, that seems sort of not that controversial if you look at the difference between, uh, you know, a, a bow, even in a compound bow, the invention of the compound bow drove an arrow a lot faster and a lot farther. And it was able to take a, a much more, a much heavier uh, tip, uh, head, arrowhead, right? And so that just means it's going to pierce more flesh at a higher velocity. So that, so at any point when you're looking at technology and warfare, you're confronted with um, the, these sort of inconvenient truths. Now, what you, would, what you would expect, you do see, which is armies get, armies, um, casualty numbers in armies as a percent of the whole go up. So um, even in Roman times, and the Romans were notoriously brutal when they fought, they, it's difficult to tell completely because it's hard to get accurate numbers of body counts on ancient, ancient battles. But you know, Romans typically walked away. And by the way, their defeated enemies typically walked away without uh, the sheer, certainly the sheer number of casualties, um, but also as a percent of the total deployed force, it's also going to be less. So it seems like we have been effective turning the linear progress of technology into 
a more effective military. But what we mean by that is just more bodies are stacking up. Um, so uh, that's, that's one point. Now, the second point is if you take a broad view of military history, his, the history of warfare, uh, you actually don't see even cultural, even culturally, you don't see the same um, concepts about war and the same brutality, the same, the same death in war. What I mean by that is um, ancient war and Keegan, uh, who wrote the, this 1992, I think he wrote this. John Keegan is generally, I mean, he's sort of popularly considered the greatest military historian. I think he's the late Keegan now. He died, um, he died a decade ago in 2012. But um, he just documents over and over again examples of battles and armies and wars that were fought before what he calls passing through the military horizon. The military horizon is when you have a bureaucratically organized and controlled um, uh, standing army. And so uh, that's an invention actually of uh, that in its mind. <laughs> like there's a, there's a kind of pre-version of this in Roman and in the Greek phalanx and in the Roman legions. But the real apotheosis of that is when it got married, not to conquest, but to, um, it got married to politics. And so uh, when you see a standing army married to political principles as the reason to fight, you've gone through the military horizon. On the other side of that horizon, you have modern warfare and you have all this more, all more, this more blood, frankly, more death, more destruction, more human lives lost and more vastly, vastly, vastly more territory and, um, and buildings and so on destroyed. Everything just gets worse. Um, so anyway, it's a little hard to talk because there's people all around me and they're, I think they're, it's just awkward, but whatever. I got to get out of the crowd here. Um, so when you, so if you look at ancient warfare and he gives many, many examples of this, um, you see, uh, you see a kind of different culture of war. Now what you had there you had a couple of variations on this. One was basically the, the large cavalry armies of the steppes, out of which came the Huns, the Mughals, the Mongols. Remember Genghis Khan and Attila? And there you had, and the Cossacks were another example of this. They were in Ukraine, actually. And this, this, Ukraine's a giant steppe, which is a high plateaued place where you can graze cattle, so or horses, rather. So the one big development in warfare in primitive times was the idea that you can ride a horse to scare the hell out of your opponent basically and also to outmaneuver them and to attack from a higher position and to see further and to run away faster and to run towards faster i mean the horse was just one of the great ideas uh of of the primitive war as was the chariot by the way because you could carry weapons in a chariot um, but what you see is that you have this immediate problem that if you're going to deploy 10,000 mounted soldiers on horses, horses have to graze. They have to eat constantly. You can't just take 10,000 horses into the mountains. You have to feed them. And so there are various strategies. But the one that won over best was just have the horses 
be somewhere where they could eat everything all the time. So out of the steppes that were just basically huge grass plains emerged these huge, huge mounted forces. The culture of those forces was to go to wage war for all kinds of different reasons. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you want to conquest civilization. Maybe you want to steal some wives. Maybe you want to um, attack a, a caravan of goods because you want the goods. Maybe you want to force people into trading with you. So you have something you want to trade. They don't want to buy what you want to buy, but if you just attack them all, they'll buy it. Um, but the culture there was curious because something like the Somme or Verdun in the battles in the World War I where people would stand in trenches and just fire into each other until pretty much everybody was dead, that would never happen in these old, you know, we, we, have, this, <laughs> we have this view of, of Genghis Khan as being extraordinarily bloody and brutal, and he was, and so was Tamerlane. Another famous leader, uh, Tamerlane would stack the skulls up of the defeated in the battlefield as a, as a, a warning to anybody, you know, as a, a signature, so to speak, of their, of their victory. These were, these were not nice guys, I'm aware of this, but their culture of warfare back there then was different. Um, it was not considered particularly embarrassing or shameful to just leave a battlefield if you weren't winning. I mean, this is just part of primitive war. In fact, if you go down, if you go back far enough in history, notice how we're moving backwards in time. The arrow is pointing in a 180 degree different direction now. Um, if you go f back far enough, the war almost starts to look like a theater, like theatrics. So that in one, I think it was Peloponnesia or something, they were quite warlike. Um, but they would fight different different uh, kingdoms would fight each other, right? Sort of fiefdoms, larger than tribes, like fiefdoms, however you want to say it. They would fight each other, and if somebody died, they would, they would throw uh, spears and arrows at each other to, and yell different chants at each other. And if somebody died, they would actually cut the fighting for the day because it was considered too bloody and against the gods to keep fighting if somebody actually perished from being hit. Typically what would happen is various people would get hit by the weapons and they would go back and they would have war wounds and then that would become part of a ritual. And it was all tied in with what the gods wanted and it was very ritualized and certainly it was bloody. But I mean, there are other examples of this. You can just go into the Hebrew Bible and find examples of wars that are really bloody, of course. But the idea that you would just stand there until everybody was dead, that never really occurred to them. It wasn't actually part of the culture of war, according to Keegan. Um, now, if you look at another good example, if you look at the Aztecs, and you know they were very quickly defeated by the Spanish conquistadors, um, but they were, even if you uh, allow for the technological supremacy because remember they had something called blumber blumber busts bumber what is it bumber oh i can't think of it anyway but they very very primitive muskets that yeah, i think they they would fight they you, you could shoot like one a minute or something um but even even if you took those away from the conquistadors and even if you took away the steel and their swords it's very unlikely that the aztecs could have mounted much of a defense 
of their civilization from from a war of conquest from Europe because they didn't even really have the concept of standing armies and fighting. I mean, they basically would send groups of groups of warriors out. They had a warrior caste, but their job was to find, basically to capture farmers and foragers as, as slaves, bring them back to the city and sacrifice them to the gods. And so, you know, their concept of violence actually was around capture, not kill. Well, it was kill later, but the warrior's job was to capture, not kill. So they could make almost no sense out of the Spanish people just hunting them down, you know, in a line and shooting at them. Like, well, what do you, like, what's the idea? Uh, so the culture, the primitive culture of violence, uh, I think has, you know, it's certainly suggestive that the kind of evolution of technology when it's married to the institution of the military, when it's married to the concept of warfare, has just made warfare kind of not only more effective, but more brutal. Um, and, and so it's, it's, uh, that's a very difficult, it's very difficult to swallow that if you want to say that everybody's getting better and less violent. It seems like we're getting more violent along that line. Um, now certainly there's a lot to be said about this and I can't, neither do I know, nor am I wanting to defend that thesis against every possible objection. But I would mention that generally, uh, John Keegan was sort of, I think, pretty much universally recognized as being more of a authority on, 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 on on the history of war and therefore a certain kind of violence than somebody like the psychologist at Harvard, like Pinker would be. So, um, and I I don't think he, like, I don't think Keegan was actually directly interested in refuting Pinker. In fact, Keegan at the end suggests that war actually can be eliminated. So he wasn't even a, he's not even a warmonger, actually. Uh, He famously, John Horgan, who wrote a book called The End of War, the same year that Pinker's book came out in 2012, actually used Keegan's analysis to argue for the end of war. So it's not that Keegan is really keen on making this argument that everything's getting shittier. Um, For one, why would you want to say that unless it's just forced on you? But he was arguing what, so let me bridge now to what Keegan was saying. What Keegan said was, is when we crossed the military horizon, we created a standing army. And when we created the standing army, it changed the, also changed the culture of warfare and it skewed it towards totalism. So the kind of rules that the warrior class used to use where, okay, we fought a valiant war and and we lost five people, but then we left because we had some beer to drink back at the camp, you know, that sort of culture gave way to a kind of totalistic culture. And how that happened was a, a function of Clausewitz, his incredibly influential book called On War. Clausewitz was a Prussian uh, officer who fought against Napoleon in the early part of the 19th century, 1800 to 1820 in there, right? And Clausewitz, Clausewitz saw, uh, he fought against the French, the French army, which had been put together, of course, originally to defeat the Royal Army. It actually had components of the Royal Army in it. The Royal Army was, of course, Louis XVI's army, which, which defended the ancient regime. And it also helped the Americans win the Revolutionary War. Um, so 
what um, what Keegan points out is that for the first time in history, uh, what so the dog, the the tail wags the dog here. So okay, what? Let me say it this way. Let's get the dog going, and then the tail can wag. Uh, so what? For the first time in history, that what the French revolutionaries realized or invented in order to ensure the victory of the revolution was that they should marry political principle to war. So not only should the military be organized according to the same quote-unquote scientific, rational, bureaucratic principles as the rest of society, um, making it more effective, but it should also fight for not for the purposes of the old warrior class, which was for glory or conquest or more often than not a sandwich or... (laughs) just whatever, right? Like just whatever it is you need, go find it. Um, but it should actually fight the, the, a true war, uh, and this is Clausewitz's language, but a true war was fought for principles that were given previously by the political environment. So politics precedes war. War, as Clausewitz famously put it, is an extension of politics. And that means that the reason standing armies fight is to defend political principles that are dear to the society out of which they come from. And that was the modern idea that that's what Klotzwitz observed in the French army um, coming out of 1789, the French Revolution. And that, that was the impetus or the inspiration for his famous dictum that was later adopted by pretty much every general and, you know, professor in a war college, you know, a military school from 17, from the time he said it in the early 19th century until pretty much the present day, actually, which is that war is an extension of politics. So war is best fought as a political idea and to defend political ideas. And war itself is an extension of those ideas. And the military is an extension of those ideas. And so Klotzwood made a distinction between Real war, which is what I've been alluding to, it's like the Cossacks who would fight for some reason because, you know, for whatever the reason was, the the reason of the day, and then they would F off uh, when it got too bloody or they just figured out we might lose, we're just going to, no shame in just disappearing into the night and we'll live to fight another day. That's what he called real war, which became, um, you know, atrocious to the new standing armies that were allied with politics who were, as Klotzwitz put it, fighting true war. The idea, that true, the, the idea was that true war was, has always been the core conceptual kernel to all war, but it's finally reached its apotheosis in the Enlightenment period, basically, in the French Revolution. And so that's what happens, though. What happened was... When war became allied to politics, you also had the idea that the troops, it changed the culture of the troops so that surrender was an abomination. So in a very real sense, if you say that in the age of reason, this is how a military should behave, shouldn't be running around stealing wives and raping and pillaging. It should be fighting until the death for freedom. Uh, right, um, but in a very real sense, that directly made war a totalistic exercise. 
right? It directly connected effectiveness with uh, casualty, with death, and with brutal violence. And so there is a huge unintended consequence in rationalizing military like that. And that is a modern idea that really did come... I mean, look, when I say it came out of the Enlightenment, I'm not stretching that much. In fact, the, at that time, these were the writings and the arguments given by war theorists and generals and, and people who were interested in making sense of war. Um, if you go back even 200 years to Machiavelli, he connected war with politics, but it wasn't making this moral argument like the later generation did. It's my favorite dogs. These dogs have seen me every day for like a year and a half and they still bark at me. Um, still me, you guys. Seriously. Still me. Um, so, okay. Why did I get into all this? Um, so, in the, in the wake of Napoleon Bonaparte's conquests after the defeat at Waterloo, the idea, the Klotzwitzian idea stuck, became the de facto idea for the justification for war, violence, and militaries themselves. Militaries got larger, they got bureaucratically or organized, and their reasons for fighting were tied to politics. So basically Western Europe militarized blood, tooth, and nail after the Enlightenment for the reasons that were given in that era. Um, and um, we had the Great Peace, which was roughly 1816, 1815 to 1914. Depends on how you count. It's about 99 years of Great Peace. It throws out the Spanish War, 1899, which was, wasn't much of a war. Uh, it, it certainly it throws out the American Civil War, which was a bloody disaster. And by the way, <clears throat> the Americans' original idea after they expanded their, mili their militias to defeat the British, uh, their idea was that we don't want all these standing armies around. So both sides, the Confederacy and the Union, in 1861 thought that the Civil War in the US, the United States, was going to be a relatively quick affair. Nobody really had a lot of troops. The United States wasn't committed to having large standing armies like Europe. And nobody thought it could be that bloody. There just wasn't enough people. Well, what happened? <laughs> the United States quickly caught up to Europe and militarized uh, on the, because of the Civil War. And so the ranks of the standing armies swelled to over a million people. In fact, I think the Confederacy, the Union had at some point almost 3 million people in the military, which was over 10% of the entire population of, the, of that part of the United States. So it's just, that's about the limit, as Keegan puts it, that you, can, that you can militarize without changing pretty much everything about the society. Over that point, it gets really weird, uh, to put it that way. I put it that way because I don't know what happens, but over that way, it changes all the other relationships, you should say. Um, you know, business relationships, social, everything starts to basically get to, to revolve around military ideas after you reach over 10% of the population. But that we were at that saturation point in the Civil War, but we went into it with these little disbanded armies. 
Um, so you got to throw all that out to talk about the great peace, but there were no major wars of con conquest in Europe for almost a hundred years. What happened when we had the first major war of conquest in Europe? That was World War One, and look what happened with all that, all those brilliant guys, those Klotzwitz uh, guys who read Kant and so on, and made so much sense of militaries. They had succeeded in getting rid of this idea of the ragtag Cossacks and the Huns and the Mughals and the Mongols, but they had succeeded also in making war something that just doesn't really resemble politics at all. It's very difficult to say that war is an extension of politics if you look at what was happening in the trenches. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all. What was the idea that your political principles would be upheld if everyone dies? And so my final point is when we get to the mid part of the 20th century, we have the ultimate kind of reductio of Clausewitz's idea, which is nuclear weapons. Now, it's, in, it's impossible to make sense of the idea that an, a thermonuclear war is an extension of politics because who's politics if everybody, if everybody is incinerated, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just not, it, 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 that can't be a political motive. It has to be a motive of pure nihilism. Um, and so there was a twist to the theory of war that was how neat, how clever. No, no, it's not an extension of politics if you use them. It's the fact that they're never used that it's an extension of politics. And so we've saved Klotzwitz's dictum by saying, well, nuclear weapons are just those political... They are those extensions of politics that are just never used. It's called mutual assured destruction. So we actually developed an entire theory around how not using rather than using those were still political. Um, they were deterrents, right? And so, you know, that's held true for... 70 years, but it's entirely unclear if it's going to hold true for another 70 or for that matter, given the world today, another seven weeks. So, um, so yeah, so I think if you look at war directly, you see how saying it's linearly progressing into something better is very suspect. It's very, very difficult to argue that kind of uh, thesis. Of course, that's exactly what Pinker wanted to argue. He also wants to involve other aspects of violence that are less systemic, like crime. You know, frankly, I haven't read P Pinker's book, and I have no interest in picking a fight with him. I probably will read his book for purposes of writing my own. But my interest is, is you know, I have to tell the reader, I have to bring the reader into a world that they may not have thought of, that also has the ostensible virtue of being true to uh, the facts of history. And I think in this sense, we, you know, there is, I think it's necessary to abandon these Panglossian, very simplistic linear progress models and look at the interaction of parts in complex systems. And uh, we need to start thinking more about how the human intellect in general seems to solve problems by creating other problems. And I think if you look at the history of warfare, that's very much on display. So yeah, that's, that's what I would say.